It's been very interesting to me as we've gone through a Song of Solomon. We're in our 17th message tonight out of 20. It's been interesting to me that some of the feedback I've gotten from many of you in emails and so forth, most of it has been from unmarried people. That's the entire intent of Song of Solomon. It is partly directed at the young person to say this is God's standard. And three times the, the young women in the poem here are addressed. Many other times they speak as well. And so that is the Word of God doing its work. And so we've seen that. In the very first message that, that we presented, we talked about the fact that traditionally Song of Solomon is not preached that much because it's felt to be uh, overly uh, detailed for the church of Jesus Christ. That's one of the many reasons. But this is the Word of God. Who are we to edit God? And so we have seen experientially now that it does its work as intended. God's view of marital love and it is part of living a sanctified life on this earth in obedience to the Lord in this particular highly important area. So turn with me to Song of Solomon 7. We're going to look at the last three verses, verses 11 through 13. I'd like to start this evening just by reading that text. Chapter 7, verse 11 And this is the bride, Shulamith, speaking here to her husband, Solomon. And she says, Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance and beside our doors are all choice fruits new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. Now just a quick side note here before we get into this text. We're almost finished with Song of Solomon, but the final message in several weeks, I'm going to do what we'll call the recapped story of marital love. I'm going to preach through the whole book one last time just to kind of give you the sense of the story, the big picture, Because the narrative, the story that's embedded in Song of Solomon is such a key to understanding the book. And we've we've done it piece by piece, but I want to imprint that story and then give you some final admonitions and lessons for us. But for tonight, just as a reminder, we've seen the progression of love between Solomon and his bride, Shulamith, sometime after their marriage. In chapter 5, she has a dream which she reveals for the second time her fear of losing Solomon. But this time, the fear of losing him in chapter 5 is because of her own apathy, her own impatience with him. When he comes to her bedroom asking for love and she turns him down. In chapters 5, 6, and 7, all the way to verse 10, we've seen the maturing of their love, the rekindling of their love. We've even seen last time that now that their love is rekindled, having been married for some time, We've seen that the descriptions of their intimate time together has actually gotten, they've gotten more intense, more erotic even, because their love is deepening, their love is developing. And so tonight we're going to see the bride, Shulamith as we've called her, responding now to this rekindling of love. What do you do now? Do you, do you just coast? Do you say, well, that's taken care of, let's move on with life? The entire section beginning near the start of chapter 6 is aiming toward an invitation that she's about to give him, the one we just read. First, she took him out into the countryside and they rekindled their love, which included, this is back in chapter 6, which included a wonderful dance that she did for Solomon. And again, that's not a legalistic standard for wives. It's just something she did. But it was an illustration of how she was delighting in him. She was rekindling their love. She was desiring to please him. And secondly, we saw that in the midst of the terrible situation with Solomon engaged in these horrible political marriages, she's finally to express confidence, able to express her confidence that she is his one and only true love. Chapter 7, verse 10, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. And now after that initial invitation to spend just a day and chapter 9 indicated we saw a night also the, the sleepy lovers enjoying tender moments together into the night, now Shulamith is going to invite Solomon to a longer outing. This was a successful shorter outing, and she's going to invite him to a longer time out. This will start out in the countryside, 
And as we'll see next time, it has the intention of going all the way to southern Lebanon to visit with her family, to get him away from everything for a time. But before we pick up the story at that point, since our topic tonight is the response to love rekindled, I want to point out before we get into the text, and we're going to use two other texts of Scripture as well tonight, that the information tonight could just as easily be called how to guard your marriage from sexual sin. Or it could be called how to guard your marriage from adultery of the mind or adultery of the body. Because what we're going to see is a great protective element tonight. First in this text and then in two other very related texts in Scripture. The Bible is filled with warnings about marital infidelity, the ultimate betrayal of the covenant relationship of marriage. Proverbs 5, 1-4, My son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew five twenty-seven and 28, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Proverbs 6.32, Solomon says, He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. And history is littered with men and women who have utterly destroyed their lives even for one horrible moment. And of course, we see this as one of the Ten Commandments, both in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. You shall not commit adultery. In the Old Testament system under God's law, adultery was so serious that Leviticus 20 says it calls for the death penalty in almost every case. Why is adultery so very serious in the eyes of God? Is it just some random rule that God set up? Well, marriage was created as a one flesh unit, a covenant relationship meant to be for life. And adultery is simply the evidence that one spouse has chosen to stop loving the other, to put self before the unit, to tear apart the one fleshness of their marriage, to violate the covenant of love. And so to prevent this horrible sin, which happens in the mind long before it happens physically, we don't just rely on some sort of teeth-gritting self-control. We don't just say, I can't commit adultery because the Bible says so. That's true, but that's not sufficient. The pathway to destruction isn't just because you're, you're not gritting your teeth in some sort of self-control. The pathway to destruction is happening because you haven't addressed the heart issue involved. And that heart issue is a sinful, purposeful decision to stop turning your heart towards your spouse. That's where it begins in the heart. And having been in the ministry for some time and done a little bit of counseling, I have heard countless excuses and minimizing. Well, we just drifted apart. That's a lie. You made a choice to drift. You could have made a choice to love the other intensely and selflessly, regardless of what you get in return. Well, he just wasn't meeting my needs emotionally. That's a lie. Marriage was never designed, nowhere in Scripture do we find that marriage is designed to meet all your so-called emotional needs. That's a spoiled brat way of saying that you want to be pandered to in your marriage instead of being a servant. Well, she's just not interested in me anymore. That's a lie. What have you done to make her disinterested in you? And what could you do to help her be interested in you again? On and on, I've heard it all. Blaming the other, blaming life, blaming even sexual desire, blaming emotional needs, blaming even mental illness. And then Satan, after watching your apathy and sin erode and corrode your marriage at just the right time, places someone in your path that emotionally makes you feel wonderful. Someone who seems to be the polar opposite of all the ways you think your spouse is failing you. And then Satan strikes through your own spiritual deception and weakness and you destroy your marriage. And for all the people thinking that would never happen to me, I've lost track of the number of unfaithful spouses who have told me over the years, wow, I never thought that would happen to me. 
The antidote to the potential for sexual sin of the mind and of the body is not to just grit your teeth so as to avoid the consequences of a destroyed life, but rather the best antidote is to enjoy the delights and the closeness of the marriage that God gave you, a marriage that satisfies at the emotional and spiritual and physical levels. This is the natural safeguard that God has put into place. And so tonight, as we look at these verses and some other texts as well, the response to love rekindled, it also serves as our safeguard. It serves as, as a, a reason to protect our marriage. We'll expand our borders after this text. We'll go to one Old Testament wisdom text and one New Testament wisdom text. But we'll start here. And what we're going to see tonight is that the response to love rekindled is very practical. It's very daily life. And, and, and I say this in all seriousness, if you as a married couple will simply note the principles we're going to see in this text, they not only serve to rekindle love, but they, they provide a barrier, a wall, a wall of protection around your precious marriage. And it keeps it safe from the intrusion of life-altering sin. And, and it creates what Song of Solomon was meant for us to create. That is a, a recreated Garden of Eden in our own homes. And so if every married couple will use this as a checklist, great and wonderful things can happen to your marriage to the glory of God. And remember, we've said this before, you can only be responsible for your part, for your sanctification. And so listen for you, not for your spouse. We don't want to see any elbows going, anything like that. You listen for you because you're the one who can change anything for you. You can't change anybody else. So tonight, I, I want to be as practical as I can, so I want to give biblical counsel to strengthen and protect your marriage. And we'll give nine pieces of counsel or nine pieces of advice from Scripture here, and they're all important, they're all vital, and they're all practical. And again, this is in the context of rekindled love. How do you respond to it? And in fact, that's our first little piece of counsel here. The first piece of counsel is build on recent progress. Build on recent progress. Verse 11, Shulamith says, Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. In verses 8 through 10, they have rekindled their love intimately, and Shulamith doesn't waste this opportunity. Now, you know that she takes this opportunity not to rest on her laurels, not to coast in their relationship. She doesn't want to just maintain the marriage. She wants to build on what has already been. Build on the rekindled love that they're enjoying. I think this is a very, very important principle because if you're in a bad spot in your marriage or you're just coming out of a bad spot in your marriage, don't think that one great weekend together fixed everything. You don't say things are fixed until there's a new pattern that's developed, new habits that have been brought forward. I've seen this more times than I care to remember in marriage counseling. I have one first session and generally at the end of that session we try to offer some hope that there is hope. And there, there's a, a sense of optimism and a sense of, yes, we can do this. And they come back a week or two later. And having maybe done their homework, yes. But I've seen this so many times that now all of a sudden scabs and wounds are, are opened. Well, yes, we did our homework. But I've thought of 50,000 more ways that she's a horrible human being. Instead of saying, we took the time to do the homework in the Word of God and to have a couple of tender moments. Don't ruin that right now. Don't try to uncover everything else. Just take the positive and use it. And that's what Shulamith is doing here. Their, their love has been rekindled and so she, she builds on that. She slingshots with that, so to speak, to get some momentum. And so her response to love rekindled is an invitation from Shulamith to Solomon to go away and lodge in the villages. They've had one day together that worked out really well. And so she says, let's go away for a longer time. And she invites him. Now, just to understand and be reminded of what exactly she's asking of him, I want to remind you of the world that Solomon lived in. What is it that she's trying to get him away from? Here's the world he's in. I'm going to take time to read a long passage of Scripture. You don't have to turn there. But 2 Chronicles 9, beginning in verse 13, describes Solomon's world. Now, though the weight of the gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. 
besides that which the explorers and merchants brought. And all the kings of Arabia and the governors of the land brought gold and silver to Solomon. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of beaten gold went into each shield. He made 300 shields of beaten gold. 300 shekels of gold went into each shield. That means you can't lift it. Basically, it's so heavy. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with pure gold. The throne had six steps and a footstool of gold which were attached to the throne. And on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrests, while twelve lions stood there, one on each end of a step on the six steps. Nothing like it was ever made for any kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king's ships went to Tarshish with the servants of Hiram. Once every three years, the ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Thus, King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. He is literally the richest man on earth. And all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. He's also the wisest man on earth. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver and of gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. And Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And he ruled over all the kings from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made silver as plentiful as the sycamore of Shephelah. And horses were imported for Solomon from Egypt and from from all lands. Silver is common as stone. A little kid walks by and wants to throw a rock at a friend he doesn't like. And he picks up a piece of silver and throws it. This is the world Solomon is in. And what does she want to do? She wants to get him away from all that. She's a country girl from her upbringing and she longs for the simplicity of the countryside and it's going to be good for them. And ultimately, the trip will end up in Lebanon in her family home. Chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 tells us that. But to begin this trip, to get him away from all this, what does she want to do? Is she taking him to the best resort in, in, in the area? No, he lives in the best resort in the area. She basically wants to take him to a, a, a Jerusalem area bed and breakfast or something like that. And she lures him away from his world of opulence by the promise of continuing the renewal of their love together. And it's so important to notice that Shulamith is using the momentum of the, the ground they've gained together in their closeness to offer more closeness, to get him away from the palace, away from all the women that follow him around continually. And listen, this is important. She has just danced for him. We saw that last time. She has served him in ways that are sensual and loving and amazing And yet she doesn't have the attitude of, well, now it's his turn to serve me. She doesn't have that attitude. No, instead, she's single-handedly working to rekindle their love. And now she continues her aggressive pursuit. There's no pride. There's no arrogance. There's no attitude of, well, I deserve something. It's my turn. Instead of being difficult or turning negative, she lures him with a pleasant invitation. She builds on recent progress. This is a very important principle for us that when something's been pleasant in your marriage that draws you close together, that's the time to keep the ball rolling. That's the time to capitalize on that momentum and to create new patterns, new habits. So the first piece of counsel, build on recent progress. Second piece of counsel we could take from this text is obey the Bible about romance. Obey the Bible about romance. Our traditional notions about romance are really based on a worldly animosity between men and women. Do you realize that? That a husband and a wife, they they live in some sort of controlled competition to get their needs met by the other. That that's how they define marriage. And it's almost a a competitive idea. And this this is often expressed with the traditional notion that romance is something that a husband does for his wife. Flower, candy, cards, dates, etc., 
This is even expressed in our traditional ways we celebrate wedding anniversaries. That our tradition says that this is basically a celebration for the sake of the wife instead of for the sake of the couple. As one man said, I got sick of our anniversaries because basically it was just another birthday for her. And those things are fine. But it's a lie that romance is one-sided. That's not scriptural. The things your wife may enjoy as part of being romanced are not inherently the sole definition of romance. Romance, as we see here, consists of meaningfully reaching out to draw the other close to you emotionally and physically. And the language and the means of romance will be very different at times for each spouse. Well, here, Shulamith is the one proactively setting up a situation where they can enjoy one another. She isn't sitting back and waiting for him to do all the romancing. She's not just mad that he can't read her mind and know exactly what she wants. She's giving him an enticing and a delightful invitation. She says that she wants them to leave early to the vineyards. Verse 12. She wants to get started at dawn, maybe to avoid the attention of the richest man on earth leaving town. And how wonderful would it be to get away from all that opulence, all the the palace intrigue, and to look at the sunrise and to hear the birds singing at dawn and to set off toward the countryside. And now as much as I might want to avoid this, there is no way around this. She said in verse 11 that she wants to go to the villages. Apparently she's asking that they make their way to these villages through the vineyards and there she will give him her love. In other words, she wants to begin the trip out in the middle of the countryside with a peaceful, private, outdoor reunion together. Second half of verse 12 tells us that. They're still in the vineyards. There I will give you my love. Verse 11 describes a couple of purposes. Verse 12, rather. It describes the, the peaceful and tranquil countryside she wants to visit with him where they can see the sunrise, the, the, the smell of the scent of the grape blossoms, maybe even feel the dew splashing up on their feet as they walk in the early morning. But it also serves, in verse 12, as a, as a coy invitation. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. Are the blooms coming forth? Will our love bloom and blossom? Solomon, what's going to happen in the vineyard? And she gives him the promise. There I will give you my love. And in fact, we see the first of two very close references to pomegranates or pomegranate wine, chapter 8, verse 2. And both times they're associated with a desire for intimacy together. If I could put it in terms, I think, a little easier for us to understand. She's taking him by the hand and saying, take me to the vineyard and let's see what happens. What's going to happen with Solomon? He's going to suddenly clear his calendar. And he's, he's gone. He's like, look at the time. Let's go. Because she's in, in, given this coy invitation. This is very important because what this demonstrates, it really chronicles the spiritual growth and the change in attitude of Shulamith. It's the exact opposite direction that most marriages seem to go. Most marriages kind of settle into, well, that was nice when we used to think that way 20 years ago. You remember how she used to be in chapter five, verses two through eight in her dream. She's resistant to his advances and openly so she even verbally hurts him with his with her apathy. A a woman expressing disinterest in her husband just may as well put a knife in his heart. In the mirror image corresponding section, as far as the structure of the book goes in chapter two, verses eight through 17 there, she's resistant to Solomon's invitation to come with him. But now she uses the exact same invitation in Hebrew that he has given to her in the past. Her her heart has changed. She's open and she's available. And in this inspired poem, a God-honoring and God-worshipping young woman has made a determination. In verse 13, the mandrakes give forth fragrance and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you. Oh, my beloved. In verse 11, she said she would give him her love, and now she gets even more specific. She says, the mandrakes give forth fragrance. 
Mandrakes were, mandrakes were considered an aphrodisiac and she's inviting him to know that she's already gotten herself available for love, that she's eager and she's available. She's not relying on what, what our, our traditional notions of romance say that it's a, a man's job somehow to make everything romantic. She's doing, she's doing this. And she says that beside our doors are all choice fruits. Now, we don't know what the doors she's speaking of are. It's probably the place in the country that they're going. Uh, it wouldn't be unlikely that Solomon owned uh, some sort of little house out in the vineyards that he owned. We saw that all the way back in chapter 1, that he owns vineyards around Jerusalem. So maybe that's where it was. Maybe it's just a, a little house in the villages that he knows of. So we don't know what the doors are, but it's probably simply the doors to the, to the rooms they're going to. But she says, beside our doors are all choice fruits. What is that? That's a picture of a buffet. There's no other way to look at this. It is a buffet of intimate pleasure together. And now, not only is she telling them that on the way to the little place in the country, while in the vineyards, there I will give you my love. Now she's talking about once they've arrived. And she says something absolutely stunning in its selflessness and love and delight that this buffet of love so to speak is filled with different things she says new as well as old which i have laid up it means saved up stored kept hidden kept saved for you oh my beloved in other words she saved up surprises for him this means that she knows him she knows what he likes there's a selflessness here in that she's thinking of him and and taking delight in him and he knows it. And yes, he's still entrenched in these terrible political marriages, but they don't offer love. This is the one woman in his life that is giving him love and is loving him. And we can't fully know what's in her mind when she says new as well as old. There's a mystery to it that in all likelihood had Solomon throwing clothes into a suitcase post-haste to get to the country outing, to find out what she meant by new as well as old. As far as the old goes, every couple has comfortable routines and norms in their intimate life together, and she's promising to enjoy that comfort and that joy that's familiar to them. But she says new as well as old. She's also expressing that she's bringing new ideas to their time together. Maybe it's things that she's learned that he enjoys and would be a blessing to him. Now, there's no reason to get more specific than this because this is between them. Just like these things old and new are private and personal between any married couple. And by the way, the old and the new, the new as well as old, this doesn't have to be restricted to sexual interaction, although that's the main emphasis here. It may also be speaking of enjoying one another in familiar ways as well as new interactions. Uh, for example, in your marriages, you have the old things. You have the things that are traditions that have come to mean a lot to you as a couple. That are familiar to you and, they, and they're, they're home base for you. New could be anything such as talking about the future, planning something new. Some even feel they're talking about children. Why would that be the case? Because she mentions mandrakes. Mandrakes give us a little clue that she may be saying, let's have children. Let's make a baby. Genesis chapter 30, Rachel, Jacob's wife, believed that mandrakes might help her get pregnant. The Bible never says that mandrakes helped with fertility. It just records that that's what people believed. At the very least, they were thought to be helpful with sexual desire, which does help with pregnancy, obviously. So the third piece of counsel, intentionally please your husband. The fourth piece of counsel, deliberately pursue your wife. Deliberately pursue your wife. Now we venture to some new territory. Turn with me over to Proverbs chapter 5. In Proverbs 5, I told you we'd spend a little extra time in, in this. And tonight is the night I'd like to do that. This fourth piece of counsel, deliberately pursue your wife. In this tremendous chapter, in chapter 5, I read the first four verses already. Solomon warns of the dangers and the traps of sexual immorality. And he uses the metaphor of water to speak of love and intimacy. Proverbs 5, verse 15. Solomon, the author of Proverbs, also says in Proverbs 5, verse 15, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? 
Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. This counsel is deliberately pursue your wife. There's a barrier to sin that is very possible, and that is your focused affection, placing all your focus, all your attention on your wife and your wife alone. In fact, in verse 16, should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, it characterizes sexual sin as wasteful. It's like being in a desert town that has a well and you're just spilling water all over the streets. It's wasteful. It's horrible. The springs and the streams of water here in these verses refer to husbands, a husband's sexual affection and the cistern refers to his wife. And Solomon warns against wasting sexual affection. And you might wonder, what is that about? It's very, very practical. I've seen this in counseling many times. It's going to be seen in marriages in which the husband says, well, I, my desire isn't where it used to be. But in fact, he's wasting his desire. He's spreading out his desire to the lusts of the heart, to pornography, to self-gratifying. What's the solution? The solution is to love and pursue your wife. A husband and wife are to refresh one another, to water each other's love. They're to be for each other, what the, the text says here, flowing water from your own well, a flowing stream, a, a peaceful well. He says in verse 18, let your fountain be blessed, continuing the water metaphor. Now the fountain, some debate whether it's the marriage or the wife, it doesn't make any difference. You, you get to the same point regardless of which view you take. Let the marriage and let your wife be blessed. This implies pursuit and more pursuit and pursuing her pleasure and pursuing her delight. That your fountain, your wife, and subsequently your marriage are blessed. This is a man pursuing his wife and saying, Sweetheart, tonight is all about you. You're the queen of the household. And so husbands are to focus their affections on their wives by deliberately pursuing them making certain she knows that you desire her. So deliberately pursue your wife. There's a fifth piece of counsel still from this text. Discipline your mind with rejoicing. Discipline your mind with rejoicing. Verse 18 continues, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. It's an absolute lie that says that newer or younger is better of both men and women. They've been falling for that lie for millennia, destroying their marriages, devastating their children, looking, by fool, looking like fools by trading in a well-established life for a fantasy which never lives up to the dreams. Never lives up. You see a 65-year-old man with a 20-year-old on his arm and you just go, why? And we might joke about that, but behind that is a, is a series of destroyed lives behind him. What are you to do? Rejoice in the wife of your youth. It means to be merry with her, to be happy with her. You notice the, the choice here is to rejoice and because she has a trump card. What's the trump card she has as the wife of your youth? The trump card is history. And men, we ought to be reminded that the wife of your youth, she bet on you. She bet that her life, she bet her life that when you're both older, you would be faithful to the life and to the love that you built together. I, I, I counseled with a friend years ago who was so angry with his, his brother. His brother spent 12 years going through uh, college and medical school and his wife had worked hard to, to help him get through and, and it had been hard on their marriage and they finally got out and he got this tremendous job and she was ready to settle down and have children and he got rid of her. She wasted her 20s and early 30s she bet on him that when they were older they would enjoy their life together and he used her so how do you rejoice in your wife it's very simple it all starts in your mind it starts with what you choose to think and then it's expressed in how you communicate this to her this is why the idea of giving flowers to a woman that you're thinking horrible thoughts about is utterly useless any woman I know, rather than flowers, would love to know that their husband is thinking glorious thoughts about her, 
much more valuable. And then, by the way, the flowers come naturally. You're not going, oh no, it's our anniversary. I guess I have to do something. You're getting flowers or whatever the, the, the language of love that your particular spouse wants because you want to. Because you've been appreciating her, you've been serving her, you've been being tender and loving with her, and yes, spoiling her a little bit here and there, treating her like the queen of the home. That's how you rejoice in your wife. And and we've said this before, and I'm going to spend some time on this in a subsequent message, but you treat your wife as if it's the last day you have with her. You treat your wife as if it's the last week you have with her, the last month you have with her, because that will be the case at some point. Do you want to waste that time being apathetic? Do you want to waste that time being nitpicky? I don't. And listen, rejoicing in your wife isn't just, well, I guess I better have a better attitude. Well, I better put up with all of her nonsense. No, it's rejoicing. It's being happy with her. It's thanking the Lord. I can't believe you gave me a wife. You look in the mirror and go, I really can't believe you gave me a wife. It means spending time in prayer thanking God for everything you can think of. That she, she gives you care in your home. That nice dress that she wears that you really like. A favorite meal that she prepares. The adorable way she blinks a lot when she's doing your laundry. The things that make her laugh. The various types of laugh that she has. If you will, as men, consciously notice everything... Your thankfulness will go up and your rejoicing in the wife of your youth, the woman who bet her life on you, will go up. Fifth piece of counsel, discipline your mind with rejoicing. The sixth piece of counsel for the wives, be cheerfully available to your husband. Be cheerfully available to your husband. Verse 19 continues, A lovely deer, a graceful doe, Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Now, this is a command to to men, to husbands, but there's an implication here, and that is what the wife is to do. Modern feminism has basically replaced the loving wife with the angry protester who puts up with her husband. The intentional pleasing of one's husband is basically a lost art. In fact, this past week on social media, a Christian woman in very matter-of-fact terms, stated very simply that she wants to please her husband and she's available to him any time. And the unbelievers went nuclear over this. They lit her up. They were angered. They were outraged. You're being abused. You need to get away from this man. He's oppressive. And she just kept gently saying, no, I'm just doing what the Bible says. And it's lovely. It's wonderful. It's, it's glorious. But an available, smiling welcome, that's God's design. And it's a design which the unbeliever can never understand because their sin nature forces them to think of themselves first. That's what they think of. This is an encouragement in verse 19 to husbands to be filled with delight at all times in the wife of his youth. But a husband's mind will not be filled with delight at all times if there's a sense of unavailability or reticence or exasperation or martyrdom. I said a couple of points ago, the husbands ought to pursue their wives. But when the response is a brick wall or the response is negative, eventually he'll quit and he'll stop. There's a big difference between a smile and a sigh of exasperation, isn't there? What's the basis for the delight? It's very personal here. It says she is a lovely deer, a graceful doe. You notice the connection to Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon chapter 4 describes the bride's breasts in these terms as fawns, like a lovely deer, a graceful doe. There's a connection to him between the delights of her body and his love for her. They're intertwined mysteriously just as God intended. This is the mystery that God created. Sexual expression and love are interwoven together. One leads to the other, which leads back to the first, which leads to the other, which leads to the first. It's a silly argument to say, well, which is more important, love or intimacy? They, they go together. One causes the other. 
Husbands are told further to be intoxicated always in her love. Intoxicated, it's an interesting word. It means to be led astray like a drunk. To be reeling and staggering with strong drink, according to Isaiah 28. A wise woman knows how to do this. How to completely distract her husband and dropping everything he's doing. And she knows how to do that. This is a a decision of desire on his part. And how is this decision undergirded by the intentional thoughts he thinks of her? He is delighted in her. In counseling, one thing in more mature marriages I've encountered is sometimes a man's decreased interest in intimacy. And most often this is quickly blamed on age or lowered hormones and so forth. And perhaps that may be a factor But in my experience, the blame mostly lies with apathy that both of them now bring to their marriage, that they've settled in. The thoughts he chooses to think and acting on them determines his desire. And by the way, the actions and the way she treats him has a physical reaction and the result is an increase in his desire as well. Kindness and smiles and touches. It creates desire. It's been, been proven scientifically. It actually creates desire in men. And it does the other way for women as well. Now I want you to notice the key timing phrases here. Timing. He says, he's commanded, let your fountain be blessed. This is an imperfect word, which means an action that's still continuing. That bless your wife, bless your marriage, bless your wife, bless your marriage. Continue with this. The command here is let her breasts fill you with delight. This is another imperfect verb, an action that's continuing over and over again. And one more timing verb, at all times. This is a direct statement from three Hebrew words that mean in order, and this is important, at all times in English. In Hebrew, what it really means is at all times. There isn't any ambiguity here. It's a constant availability. And this is God's wish for you. In fact, verse 18, the the verb here, let your fountain be blessed. This is a Hebrew verb form which expresses a wish, a dream, a hope. Where does this wish come from? It comes from God. May your fountain be blessed, we could translate it. And if your determination is a smiling, welcome availability, which allows a husband to be intoxicated with a wife's love, in a state of delight. Are you starting to see what a powerful protection and safeguard this is? It builds a wall of safety and fortification around your marriage and it protects you against the potential that we see in verse 20. Why should you be intoxicated, my son? Same word, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress. So the sixth piece of counsel, be cheerfully available to your husband. Seventh piece of counsel. Do not make one-sided decisions. Do not make one-sided decisions. Now we're going to turn to another passage of wisdom literature in the New Testament, and that is 1 Corinthians 7. If you turn with me there to 1 Corinthians 7. Now we would classify this more as wisdom-type literature, proverbial a type of passage, because Paul is dealing with countless varieties of variable situations of potential marriage situations. And so in in the book of Proverbs and in proverbial wisdom, we have truths that are generally true most of the time. And there's very few commands in chapter 7 as as compared to many other places that Paul writes. And so very unusually for him, he uses a lot of fatherly suggestion language mixed in with a few commands here and there. We'll, We'll see one of them. We're going to see about one of a dozen different examples of this type of proverbial language. Principles that are generally true, but not couched as a law or a command in every case, or not all of it is a law or command. And that is in 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 3. The wife should give, the husband rather, should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over his own over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. 
Now, why is this issue here? Why is this even being addressed? Some of the new believers in the church of Corinth had come out of pagan systems in which sexuality was horribly misused in even pagan worship rituals. And so as believers, many of them had come to to believe that sexuality in general was evil. So they were just staying away from it, even as married people. And so Paul is normalizing marital sexual relations. And in fact, he's commanding it here. And this is based on the mutual ownership principle of marriage. Paul is very clear in verses 3 and 4 that we are one flesh, and as a result, we don't own our own bodies solely. And in verse 5, Paul does give one clear black and white command, do not deprive one another. And then he gets fatherly, proverbial. He gives a for instance, that there may be some exceptions to this, and he gives one example. He says, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Now let's deconstruct that phrase there just for a moment. Except perhaps. It has the idea of, well, maybe if, or perchance, or ah, maybe. That's the, that's the most strength you can give that phrase. He also says, for a limited time. This is a phrase that means you set a time in advance. And it's not a long time. There's not a, 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 a lengthy hiatus from intimacy. And he says that you may devote yourselves to prayer. That's not the only reason given. It's just except perhaps, for example. But it does give us a principle here that you may devote yourselves to prayer that an exception would be something higher and more lofty needing to happen, such as a time of devotion to the Lord. And there's, there are very practical reasons for this. This might be a, a response to a tragedy. Intimacy can become very difficult when dealing with tragic circumstances. There might be a, a crisis of some sort. It might be a, a preventative because of a health issue. And this is very practical. And, and it might go something like this. I know this is the time that we usually spend together, but I'd like to suggest that tonight we spend time in prayer or in just being together because of this terrible thing that's happened or because of this particular circumstance, and, and it ought to make sense. But the phrase that I skipped, and this is the entire point, is by agreement. By agreement. This is so important. One spouse does not unilaterally make that decision. This leads to using intimacy to exert control over the relationship, to make it a bargaining tool as a reward or a punishment if it's withheld. The intimate relationship does not belong to the wife. The intimate relationship does not belong to the husband. It belongs to the marriage. It belongs to the one flesh unit. That's the whole point. One-sided decisions are, are horrible. It leads to struggling with bitterness and anger because one spouse has taken control of the marriage by basically weaponizing intimacy against the other taking that thing which is supposed to be one of the highlights of marriage and turning it into a weapon. By the way, the connection between the spiritual and emotional connection in the marriage and the physical connection is undeniable. You can't separate those. You can't just say, well, he just wants sexual intimacy. There's love involved here as well. The spiritual-emotional connection leads to the physical connection, but the opposite is true as well. This is very not talked about very often and it's not understood very well. The physical connection creates an emotional, spiritual connection. It creates it. It's not just the result of it. It creates an, a, a, an invisible, as it were, spiritual connection. How do we know this? Well, we have very clear proof in Scripture. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16, he warned against illicit sexual intimacy with someone who's not your wife because it forms a bond. Verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. That's a spiritual idea. So not tending to this part of your marriage can create feelings of, of not even being liked and certainly not being prioritized, of feeling rejected, disliked, unloved. It's horribly destructive. It's, it's like saying, hey, our marriage is going pretty good. Let's drop this grenade into the middle of it. 
Let's just, let's just destroy everything. Hey, let's break all the windows in our house. Hey, let's drive all of our cars off of a cliff. Hey, let's lose two or three of our children. Let's just do something to just utterly destroy our lives. That's the level that this is at. Instead, come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance and beside our doors are all choice fruits new as well as old which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. So the seventh piece of counsel, do not make one-sided decisions. An eighth piece of counsel, another do not, but it's here in the text. Do not ignore the reality of temptation. Do not ignore the reality of temptation. Verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. A marriage deprived of the life-giving waters of intimacy can cause temptation on the part of both the husband and the wife. The, The temptation might come in different flavors, might be toward different things, but it's still temptation nonetheless. And you might say, well, Men are the ones who are tempted. My experience has been that it goes both ways. A husband may be tempted sexually. A wife is tempted emotionally. Oh, I wish my husband was more like that guy. That's adultery. That is adultery. But we do acknowledge that with husbands, there is generally a a high proclivity toward desire. And this can be especially an issue for him. The damage that's done to the one flesh marriage is almost inestimable if you ignore that temptation is a reality. Well, my husband is a Christian. He shouldn't be tempted. doesn't matter what happens in the home. That's not reality. According to Paul, it's not reality. It can cause a sense of distance between you. It can cause a sense of injustice that what is rightfully yours has been withheld. It can cause a rationalizing of sinful sexual expression such as self-gratifying or pornography or just allowing yourself to think thoughts of others who are not your husband or not your wife. Well, I'm going to think about this woman because my wife is, is just not available to me, so I have the right to think about this. It's sinful. Now, I want to lighten this up just a little bit since our text in Song of Solomon used the metaphor of food the choice fruits and the mandrakes, let me stay with that to illustrate the reality of temptation. And in this way, I can speak very openly without saying anything. I want you to picture the marital intimate relationship as food and consider these truths. Remember that there are no other options for eating. The other spouse will go hungry until you bring food and prolonged hunger will make the other feel unloved and unimportant. It can be discouraging to always have to ask for food. Sometimes it's nice to be fed because the other one knows you're hungry. If you cannot serve a meal for some legitimate reason, it's important that you tell the other and let the other know when the meal might be coming soon. The other isn't being selfish because he or she's hungry. Hunger is normal and it happens whether or not you're up to cooking a meal. Anytime the other one is hungry, remember that there are no other meal options. And hunger may begin an internal struggle of temptation. And no person is immune to this. The temptation might be different for different people, but it's possible for all. So keep each other full whenever possible. The other may get hungry at inconvenient times. Do your best to accommodate and don't always default to no or not now. Remember that eating is not optional. It should be a priority in your mind and in your schedule. Take time to do significant meal planning. And how about this one? Remember that when meals are not served regularly and enjoyably, the other is now having to do all that the Lord calls the other to do in life with an added layer of fighting off temptation and frustration. Just because your spouse isn't saying openly, I'm really dealing with temptation, that doesn't mean it isn't happening. The Apostle Paul already said it's going to happen. So just acknowledge the reality. Do not ignore the reality of temptation. Let me give you one last piece of counsel. This is broader in scope. Check your heart for the Lord. 
check your heart for the Lord. I, I think one of the reasons that Song of Solomon just isn't preached that much is because it, it, it's maybe difficult to establish a connection between following after Christ with a whole heart and what the Bible says about marriage. And we said this in our opening message to this whole series, but it's disappointing to me when marriage is somehow presented as utterly separate from our faith. That somehow the Bible just happens to give marriage advice that's separate from following after Christ. But you check your heart for the Lord. Because I would say to you that submissive and eager obedience to the Lord is the only avenue to the most satisfying walk with Christ and the most satisfying marriage. One question I get sometimes, never in our public Q&As that we do, it's always in private, but the question is, how do I create desire in my spouse? She's just not interested or he's not interested. How do I create desire? Well, this will be worth the price of admission because Scripture has the secrets of intimate desire and it involves checking your heart to obey the Lord out of love for Him and and for His will. Here are these secrets to creating intimate desire in the other. You ready? Peter gives them. 1 Peter 3, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external. In other words, don't be shallow. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, that you're not just merely external, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. No man has ever said, you nag me 24-7 and it really gets me going for you. No man has ever said that. Verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. And verse 7, again, the secret to creating desire. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. The Apostle Paul had the secret of creating desire. Colossians 3.18 Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Has the idea of not being embittered with bitter words toward them. I don't know how many times I've heard in a counseling session a man say, My wife just doesn't have desire for me. Would you please tell her to submit? And she says, he's a jerk all day long. And then he wants me to suddenly have desire. They both have a responsibility, but his responsibility is husbands love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Don't be shocked when there's no desire there because you haven't put it there. The protection of your marriage, the nurturing of your love life together, the beauty and the mystery of the glorious one flesh relationship, the joy that can be yours, as Peter called marriage, the the grace of life. It begins with the heart attitude with the most important phrase in all the Bible about marriage. And that is in Colossians 3.18, as is fitting in the Lord. That's the most important phrase about marriage. You're obeying the Lord. You're, you're going along with the plan that He made. And so if you're truly a follower of Christ, if you've repented of your sin, if you've come to faith and you have said, I will deny myself and I will take up my cross and I will follow you, if you believe what the Apostle Paul said and you agree with it in Galatians 2.20 that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. If you believe that, if you profess to love Christ, then you will fully accept what Jesus said in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And if you do that in your marriage, you just happen to also get the fruit of the joy of marriage as God intended it. At the very least, you will have the fruit of of your own obedience. Your spouse may not, may not respond to you at all. And that's not the point. The point is you're pleasing the Lord. As is fitting in the Lord. And at the most. Your spouse will say you're a different person. And you'll see a softening and a response. In almost every case. 
My hope and my prayer for you, and I pray for your marriages every week, my prayer is that your marriage has a glorious, high, and powerful wall of protection all around it. And inside those walls, may there be choice fruits, new as well as old. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the clarity that you have given to us. We thank you for the lengthy poem of Song of Solomon. We thank you for the other passages in Scripture, which of course fit perfectly because your word always interprets itself perfectly. It always helps itself to be understood by our hearts and minds. I do pray for our marriages, Lord. I pray that you would bless them with um, rekindled love and with proper responses to rekindled love, with strengthening, build the walls of protection around our the marriages in our church, Lord, and, and inside those walls, let there be the, the preciousness of, of the one flesh relationship and closeness and unity and joy and companionship and friendship and, and love. And I pray then that that would in turn make us as a church body stronger and stronger together with families that have their priorities straight, marriages that are strengthened. Lord, in the days to come, it may be, if, if you so will, that we have new attendees and new members even coming to grace and they come bringing their pain and their hurts including marriages that aren't working right that aren't as is fitting in the Lord and so I pray you would equip the married couples here now to be ready and equipped to to show their own marriages as examples and to come alongside others Lord and make them strong in the Lord as well We pray that we would do all of these things to the honor of Christ, that we would make our homes that which we would be pleased to invite our Lord and Savior into to see. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.